0: Hello Wise Woman and welcome to this week's episode of Woman Wellness. This is a show all about natural health and holistic wellness. I'm your host, Wanga Hanyani, helping you to take control of your life, transform your health, and become the best version of yourself. Let's get into it. Today we're going to be talking about the conventional treatments that are used for hormonal imbalances. Before we get there, You may be wondering why you didn't get any episodes for the past two weeks. The reason is I did the very same thing that I tell my clients not to do. I did not rest. I overworked myself down to the bone and just did too much that I became extremely exhausted. I was almost burned out. And so I had to take my own advice very humbly and take a break. My initial idea was to create the content, pre-schedule it so that you still get the content weekly and you'd never even know I was gone. But I thought that's sort of not how life works. You know, it's convenient for everyone if, you know, you pre-schedule everything and just kind of disappear. But I said, this is a teachable moment. This is exactly how life goes. And if I Take the rest, come back and say, hey, I was away for a bit because this is necessary. And I think that makes more of an impact. And even on a hormonal level, rest is extremely important. But we'll get into that when we start talking about the natural remedies of balancing your hormones. Okay, so let's jump straight into things. Birth control pills. Hormonal birth control is the most common form of birth control. There are other options that are non-hormonal, but hormonal is the most common one, and that includes the the pill, patch, ring, injection. All these fall under hormonal birth control, and what that means is it alters your hormones to prevent you from getting pregnant. There are various types of pills, and that's what I'll be talking about specifically: the birth control pill. You get different types; the most common being combination estrogen and progesterone. And then you get um, the mini pill, which is just progesterone or progestin. And then you get, even within the combination ones, you get phasic ones. So you get monophasic, biphasic. And that means that the pills, according to which day or week it is, have different concentrations of estrogen and progesterone. Then you get A type where they say seasonal. And this is one that essentially controls your hormonal state to the point where you only have your period four times in a year. So, four out of a possible 13 cycles. This scares me. I'll be honest, this is a very disconcerting type of medication for me. Something that's supposed to naturally occur every month is being controlled to the point where it only happens four times. It's convenient but it's not healthy. It's not, it's not something that we should take so lightly. The pill is said to, to regulate hormones. So if you have hormonal ba- imbalances, if you have uh, PMS, if you have irregular periods, then the common thing is to put you on the pill because it's said to regulate your period. And it is of course used to prevent pregnancy. But regulate is not the word I would use. Alter or disrupt is what I would use. And this is even the definition of the National Institute of Health. If you go to the website and you look at the ingredients that make up the birth control pill, they're all listed under endocrine disruptors, hormonal disruptors. So when you're taking a birth control pill, you're not altering or regulating. You're actually disrupting your endocrine system. You're disrupting your hormonal system. Now, that doesn't sound like a good idea if you already have hormonal imbalances, because if you're having irregular periods then you already have hormonal imbalances, and then if you're taking the birth control pill, then you're further disrupting your hormones. In the short time, it looks like it's regulating things, but in the long time, it's actually brewing a storm, essentially, that may likely, you know, get out of hand at a certain point. Many women are aware of the side effects of weight gain. That's the one that most women are aware of. But there are many more other side effects that are there which are more serious than just weight gain. Brands like Yaz and Jasmine were very quick to say, oh, our pill doesn't make you gain weight, it clears your skin, it makes you feel great, that helps you lose weight. And that's my concern in that when it comes to the pill, women are sold the beauty. The beauty of convenience, the beauty to control your when you want to get pregnant, the beauty to control when and how long you bleed, the beauty to clear your skin—they sold the beauty, but the beast is in the side effects. When I was on the pill, around sixteen, around sixteen years old, I had the worst experience. And I've had bad, I've just had bad experiences in taking any of the pills. And I've been on four or five different types of pills. I've had just bad experiences. I had mood swings. I had depression. I had anxiety. I would cry all the time. I was just a very unpleasant person to be around. If you ask anybody in high school who was in my A-level class, they'll tell you that, Oof, you know, I was just bearable. But I knew I was an unpleasant person to be around. And what made it worse was I didn't know why I was being this difficult person. It was only after a very long time that I realized, oh wait, this this doesn't this doesn't feel right. Whenever I'm on the pill, I feel just you know, I feel anxious, I feel depressed, I feel irritable, I can't sleep well, I feel tired. And then that's when I decided to come off it. But I'd always have to go back on it because the guy would say, Well, you know, you have to go back on it. But you know those are some of the, what I would say are minimal side effects. Studies have shown that the pill negatively affects gut health, brain function, bone development, vaginal and bladder health. And this shows up in symptoms like irritable bowel syndrome, migraines, depression, suicide, insulin resistance, kidney diseases, fertility problems autoimmune conditions, which we're seeing such a massive rise in right now, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, blood clots, stroke, and heart attacks. And on the thing of blood clots, I just want to highlight that, again, brands like Yaz and Yasmin, which were so quick to really market their brand as the revolutionary pill, you know, that it was it didn't give you any of the side effects that were so common before with the other pills, actually lost millions in lawsuits because a lot of women suffered from blood clots that either led to stroke or or death. That's one of the side effects that are extremely dangerous. The blood clotting. Some blood clots clear themselves and some of them it might just feel like cramps in your legs, your groin or your arms. Those are some of the symptoms that are associated with taking the pill. I think the most disconcerting of the birth control pill, as early as 1999, 1999, this is 20 years ago, the WHO, World Health Organization, had already classified combination oral contraceptives like the pill as a class one carcinogen. Class one is when it's described as it is carcinogenic to humans. This thing causes cancer. And this was reviewed and still confirmed in 2006. So we've known this for a very long time that this pill, this type of medication is cancer causing. But nothing has been done on the ground because you still have 16-year-olds going into gynecologists with acne and being prescribed the pill. You still have women who want to, you know, say, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to have babies right now being prescribed the pill. You still have women who have irregular periods, irregular bleeding, and PMS still being prescribed the pill. That's ludicrous. How do we still, 20 years later, knowing that this is a carcinogen, how do we still have it being prescribed? Now, we can't ignore the socio-political side of things. The pill represents part of women's emancipation. The idea that we're in control of our bodies, the idea that we own our bodies. I can decide as a woman when I want to have babies and how many babies I want by being on the pill. It's a very strong political statement that, you know, that, that is in support of women. But it comes at the expense of our health. And that's where the problem is. We should still have the option as women, as a modern day woman, to say, now's not the time that I want to have babies, but I would like to have babies later. And so I, right now, I want to be on something that, you know, an oral contraceptive or contraceptive in general, but it must not come at the expense of our health. Now, going back to the WHO, the pill has been linked, as I mentioned, to cancer, that is a cancer causing agent, and it's in class one, along with smoking asbestos, and processed meats like bacon, ham, salami, so they have been proven to cause cancer. And the pill has been associated with breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and those are the cancers that are the most rampant in women. So something needs to change, and something definitely needs to be done here. The next pill that we're going to talk about is clomiphene citrate or what you might know as Fertimid or Clomid, depending on how much you want to pay for it. And this does the opposite of the pill. It helps you get pregnant. So the pill stops you from ovulating, while Clomid or fertumid helps you get pregnant. So it helps you ovulate if you have an ovulation or a lack of ovulation, then Clomid helps you ovulate so that you can get pregnant. It works by stimulating the ovaries to release the eggs that can get um, fertilized by sperm. Clomid generally is taken for three to six cycles. That is that is the general recommendation. And then after that, it should cease. Now, the other day I had a chat with a lady and she was telling me that she has been on Fertomid since 2017. I just said that it should not be taken more than three to six cycles. She went on Fertimid for a couple of cycles to help her ovulate. And that didn't happen. And when she came off it, she was spotting. She was still spotting and her periods were irregular. It wasn't used to regulate her period. She was on the pill before that. But to help her ovulate, she was put on Fertimid. And that didn't work. And when she came off it, she was still spotting. She was put back on Fertimid and has been on Fertimid since 2017. She's still being prescribed Fertimid two years later. So if you take Fertimid or Clomid for a really long time, for more than six cycles, the main thing that you are at risk of is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And again, because it's making your ovaries release eggs, so it's stimulating your your ovaries, right? And if you take it for too long, then it's hyperstimulation. And that results in gross enlargement of your ovaries and gastrointestinal issues. Those are the two main symptoms or responses of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So according to this medication, if you have ovarian cysts, if you have fibroids, if you have endometriosis, if you have abnormal estrogen levels, if you have abnormal vaginal bleeding, if you have abnormal liver function, if you have ovarian or pituitary failure, if you have thyroid issues, if you have adrenal issues, if you have hyperprolactinemia, all these conditions, if you have them, it may not be a good idea for you to be on clomid or Fertomid. Now, if you look at all these conditions, you realize that these are all hormonal based Conditions. So essentially what they're saying is, if you have hormonal issues, then don't take Fertimid or Clomid. But if a woman needs to be on Fertimid or Clomid, then she does have hormonal issues. Otherwise, she would be able to conceive by herself, right? It's like we're going around in circles with some of this medication. Now, anovulation or a lack of ovulation is becoming increasingly common in women of the childbearing age and accounts for about 30% of infertility. It's typically, but not always, coupled with irregular periods. That's one of the telltale signs that you might want to start checking for. If you have irregular periods and are having trouble getting pregnant, then you, you want to start to check, are you ovulating or not? Because sometimes you could just have irregular periods but ovulate. And sometimes you could be, it could be both, that you're not ovulating and you're having irregular periods. And one of the ways that you can check for ovulation is by checking your basal body temperature, which is where you check the changes in your body temperature. Because when you ovulate, you are essentially on heat. Your body temperature rises when you're ovulating. So for ovulation to happen... It involves the hypothalamus, pituitary, and ovaries, HPO axis. This is where ovulation occurs, and if there is a malfunction or misfiring of any sort in this hormonal loop, then ovulation may not happen. The hypothalamus releases GNRH, which is gonadotropin releasing hormone, which causes your pituitary to release FSH and LH. I'll explain this further and in depth when we start the fertility series. But just looking at this, you can see that when it comes to helping a woman ovulate, we can't just go straight for the ovaries. We have to consider the hypothalamus. We have to consider the pituitary. We also have to consider the thyroid and the adrenal glands. Because if you remember in the last episode, on our little mini bio 101, I talked about how we have hormonal loops. And so we have the HPA, which is hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal. Then we have the HPT, hypothalamus, pituitary, thyroid. And then we have the HPO. And then altogether, all those endpoints, the O, the A, and the T, ovaries, adrenals, and thyroid, also make up a loop. So if you're going for the ovaries and ignore everything else, then you may not have as much success as you're hoping. And this is the importance of holistic wellness. This is why woman wellness is very focused on looking at the bigger picture and helping you understand everything in a holistic standpoint. And even the programs, the health protocols that you get are very individualized for you and what works for you, as opposed to a blanket approach of, oh, you're having trouble ovulating? Let's just give you ovulation medication. Because there's a bigger picture. What if you're stressed? What if you have a thyroid issue? What if you're have adrenal fatigue what if you have depression all those things what if you have gastrointestinal issues all those things affect your health and your ability to conceive and so they must all be looked at so we've had the, the birth control pill which is used for you know preventing pregnancy regulating periods clearing acne and then we've talked about clomifen which helps to get you to get pregnant by helping you ovulate the next one is antiandrogens Androgens are found in both males and females, but are generally referred to as male hormones. So these are testosterone, DHEA, DHT, and they're necessary for male and female function. Androgens and estrogen are known as steroid hormones. And you know what steroids do? Steroids make things grow. So like estrogen, we also produce androgens in our ovaries and adrenal glands, Our muscles and fat tissue can also make androgens. In fact, estradiol, which is the predominant estrogen form during our reproductive years, is made from testosterone via the aromatase enzyme. So symptoms of high androgens will look like hirsutism, which is excess hair growth. So women who are extremely hairy, you know, in in male type of places, so like beards, moustaches, um, acne. Hormonal acne, so that's another form of hormonal acne from too much testosterone. Irregular periods, absent periods, which is called amenorrhea, an ovulation, a lack of ovulation, and fertility. To put this in context of how a woman might have too much testosterone, about 45% of women pro-athletes have irregular periods. And this can be linked to androgen excess because they tend to be muscular so they are producing testosterone levels that are a little bit higher than the average woman this is also because of a restrictive diet like high protein low carb diets low they have low body fat and just the, their lifestyle in general when it comes to exercise extremely strenuous that accounts for the irregularity in their periods another group of women that have high testosterone, are women who have PCOS. And so antiandrogens are actually prescribed for women who have PCOS because one of the ways to manage it is to bring down the high testosterone. One of the symptoms that women with PCOS might have is the hirsutism, the abnormal hair growth, the excess hair growth. And so by giving the antiandrogens, it lowers the androgen level in their bodies and helps them manage that aspect. Because there are topical ways to get rid of excess hair growth, but because it's a hormonal issue, it's typically addressed internally. So symptoms that are associated with an androgen excess in women is low sex drive, breast tenderness, brain tumors, liver toxicity, bone pain, back pain, pins and needles in your extremities, blood clots again, stroke and deep vein thrombosis, which puts you at risk of heart attacks. One such condition was reported by a 23-year-old health and fitness instructor who was on antiandrogens. Now already, her case study kind of tells me that she was not looked at in a holistic picture. Because if she's coming in, and showing symptoms of androgen excess, but she's 23 years old. She's a health and fitness instructor. That means most of the time she's spending her time gymming. If it was a more holistic approach to health, then would say, well, lay off the exercise a little bit, or let's find exercise that's less strenuous and let that will reduce the excess the excess androgens in your body and just help you recover. But she was given. Antiandrogens, and within a short while of taking it, she stroked. She couldn't speak. And that's one of the side effects of antiandrogens the strokes, the blood clots, the deep vein thrombosis. If she was, you know, assessed in a more holistic way, then she may not have had to go through a trauma of a stroke at 23 years old. So I talked about how antiandrogens are used for women with PCOS. Another commonly prescribed medication for women with PCOS is metformin. Metformin is also commonly used for people who have type 2 diabetes. In fact, that's the main target group, type 2 diabetes. Now, you may be thinking, well, what does diabetes have to do with hormone balance? If you remember, when we talked about all the endocrine glands, all the hormonal-producing glands, the pancreatic islets, So insulin resistance or diabetes is a type of hormonal imbalance as well, if you will. And what happens in type 2 diabetes is that you are either not responding to the insulin, which is the hormone, or your body is not producing enough of it. And that's where the insulin resistance comes from. This is seen in women with PCOS. In fact, in the Rotterdam criteria, it says to diagnose a woman with PCOS, she must have two, at least two of three. One, polycystic ovaries. Two, high androgen levels. Or three, insulin resistance. So if you have two of these, you may have PCOS. You don't even necessarily have to have polycystic ovaries. You just need to have at least two. This is why PCOS is looking to be renamed because it's a multifaceted issue a very strong metabolic aspect to it as well. So in women with PCOS, high insulin levels are actually a marker and these lead to high androgen levels like testosterone. It's important to note however that not all PCOS cases are insulin resistance. Only about 65 to 70 percent of women who have PCOS have insulin resistance. Unfortunately, most women who have PCOS are prescribed metformin Without thoroughly assessing, because there is, like I mentioned, the criteria, there are other tests that need to be done to make sure that this woman is truly insulin resistant before prescribing metformin. It's almost like a blanket approach that, oh, you have met you have PCOS, take metformin. And that's not always the case. If you are overweight or obese, then you most likely do have insulin resistant. But even leaner types of PCOS also have Insulin resistance. But still, again, this is why it needs to be checked before it is prescribed. Now, metformin has worked quite well with women who have PCOS. And in fact, it also has some studies have shown that along with taking the clomid, it actually does help improve ovulation. But the success of metformin is closely linked to your diet, your lifestyle, your exercise, and your overall health. Decisions. So, to get the best out of the metformin and the clomid, you have to make the dietary changes, the lifestyle changes, and the exercise. So, it has to be again a holistic approach. Prepare your entire body to be able to really make the most of the medication. A major point of concern for metformin is that it reduces B12 and calcium intake or absorption, which is another problem because, again, if you're dealing with fertility, B12 is essential, and so is calcium. But metformin really reduces the ability for you to absorb or intake B12 and calcium. A B12 deficiency can damage the nervous system, can cause megaloblastic anemia, can cause tiredness, weakness, and soreness, constipation, depression, confusion, and even dementia. And your ability to take up B12 is also dependent on the availability of calcium. Now, if metformin is affecting the both of them, that's also going around in circles again. Because even with calcium, it's needed for bone health, it's needed for blood clotting, it's needed for muscle contraction, and healthy nerves. So the thing with metformin is that it goes in to regulate blood sugar and help with ovulation in women with PCOS, but on the other hand, it comes out giving you a risk of other things like B12 deficiencies, which will affect your fertility and general health. And by the way, a study was shown that metformin found in wastewater caused intersex and reduced the ability of offspring in fish. Let that sit. The same medication that we're taking reduced the ability to produce offspring. I'll leave that one there. The last one that we'll talk about is levothyroxine, what you might know as Synthroid or Levoxyl, And this is now used for thyroid conditions. It's commonly used for people who have hypothyroid. Hypothyroid is a low-functioning thyroid. It's also commonly used to prevent goiters. Now, we know by now that we have the OAT axis. Ovaries, adrenals, thyroid. And so if the thyroid is struggling in one way, then we also know that the ovaries and adrenals also need to be taken care of. The thyroid is an extremely sensitive gland. You need to approach it with caution. You can go from hypothyroid to hyperthyroid just like that if it's overstimulated. It's a very sensitive organ. And so, like I said, we have the OAT, ovaries, adrenals, thyroid, and then we also have the HNP. So again, when you're addressing the thyroid, every other aspect has to be addressed. In its indications, it says if you have adrenal disorder, if you have heart disease, if you have a thyroid disorder, then it might not be a good idea to be taking this medication. But don't we just say that it's for the thyroid, but they're also saying if you have a thyroid issue, then you shouldn't take this. Huh. If you have blood clot issues, if you have bone issues, if you have pituitary issues, if you have diabetes, if you have anemia, let your doctor know before you go on this medication. If you have a thyroid issue, you're going to have some sort of adrenal issue. You're going to have some sort of blood clotting issue. You're going to have some sort of pituitary issue because all these are interlinked. So again, we're going round and round in circles. If you do end up taking the levothyroxine, then you can expect some sort of mood or mental changes, body cramps, irregular heartbeats, hot flashes or feeling unusually cold, weakness, tiredness, sleep problems, depression, memory problems, irritability, dry skin, hair loss, and that's just a short list. It's also important to note that levothyroxine is affected by many medications and vitamins. So something even as simple as Gaviscon affects levothyroxine. Something as, as simple as iron supplements affects levothyroxine. That's how sensitive the medication and the gland is. So there's a lady that um, I had a chat with about a year ago. Her story still sits very heavily on my heart, I'll be honest. She had an ovary rupture from cysts growing on her ovaries that ruptured and she had to have surgery and the ovary was removed. Um, She's gone through five miscarriages. She has depression, so she's on depression medication. She has um, digestive issues, IBS if I'm not mistaken. And she's also been on. She's also on hy- a hypothyroid medication because she was told she has hypothyroid, and her thyroid was removed. Now, if you step back and look at the bigger picture here, I've just talked about she's got an ovary issue, she's got a thyroid issue, she's got she's in a stressed and depressed stage, so she's got an adrenal issue, and she's got a gastrointestinal issue. These are all links. There's a hormonal landmine going on in her body, and it was just setting off at different places. But no one stops to look and say, oh, wait, you had a thyroid issue. The thing going on with the ovaries makes sense. Oh, wait, you, you are depressed. Well, you had a thyroid issue, so that also makes sense. No one has stopped to look at the whole picture. The GP has said he's given a treatment for what he sees. Gynae is giving a treatment for ovaries, endocrinologist giving a treatment for a thyroid, and everyone's just coming in and doing their part. But what if everybody just kind of stepped back and said, let's look at the whole picture and help this poor woman, you know, and that's something, it's sorry, I get extremely emotional when I think about that story, and I I hope I hope she finds um, she yeah so Anyway, um, that's that's just one of what that's just a good way of explaining how our entire hormonal system is connected and how it must be addressed in a holistic fashion. Now, if we look at the symptoms that we've discussed about all of these medications, you'll start to see overlapping conditions like liver disorders, hormonal disorders cancer disorder the the risks of taking some of these medications starts in the long term starts to outweigh the benefits of taking these medications and if we can start to look at the the big picture and start to address the hormonal issues as they are as opposed to looking at things with a reductionist approach i believe that we can get much further and that we can get better results these medications that are said to balance the hormones are doing more, are doing more disrupting than balancing. Secondly, liver function seems to be greatly under attack. And as women, liver function is essential for not only our health but our fertility and our hormone balance as well. Our liver is the powerhouse. It metabolizes drugs and pro- and detoxifies all chemicals. It processes everything that you consume through your body. And so the health of the liver is extremely important, just like the kidneys. And thirdly, the cancer is cancer is a bigger killer than HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria combined in South Africa. With breast cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, and lung cancer being the most prevalent when it comes to diagnosis in women. So it's imperative that we take care of ourselves. It's imperative that we make very informed decisions about the medications that were being prescribed. We have to be extremely informed, we have to be extremely assertive, and we also have to be extremely proactive when it comes to the medications that were being prescribed. It's definitely your responsibility to take control of your life and heal yourself. Because the medical system, unfortunately, has a blanket approach. So if you have PCOS, then there's already a protocol made for that. If you have fibroids, then there's already a protocol made for that. If you have endometriosis, there's already a protocol made for that. It's almost unlikely that you'll go into into the medical system and get an individualized treatment protocol. They'll just give you what is the standard. And nobody is a standard. Nobody is average. Everybody is different. Every person has a different physiological makeup, and that's why it has to be extremely individualized. For example, when we do the women wellness coaching, everything that we do, the diet plan, the exercise plan, the mental health and emotional health issues that are addressed are addressed according to where you are at. So we meet you where you are at, and we work with you. We don't come in with a blanket approach like, oh, you've got fibroids, just take this. No, everything is, even the herbal remedies, they're tweaked to make sure that you are getting exactly what you need and not the standard approach. And the thing with with many of these medications, it's more about disrupting or overriding your normal hormonal system as opposed to regulating it. And the moment you override the system, the body takes a step back and say, oh, if you're doing it for me, then I don't need to do it again. And this is why sometimes when you come off these medications, the body just doesn't know what to do because it's it's been helped or it's been done for, processes have been done for for so long that it's forgotten how to do things itself. And so when we're looking at even the natural remedies, it should help your body do what it's meant to do and not override. A closing thought is when it comes to all these medications, we cannot deny that they are needed. The problem comes when these medications, which is supposed to be helping, end up causing more problems than than what you started out with. So something that was just supposed to be as simple as regulating your periods ended up in you having trouble having babies. Or something that was supposed to help you clear your skin ended up in you having thyroid problems we want the convenience we want the help we want the health benefits of these medications but it, it must never come at the expense of our health it's going to take us as women standing up for ourselves because one of the things that women have a problem with when they go to doctors offices is that they are forced into taking certain medications even at even when they protest they are coerced, and sometimes even threatened, like, if you don't take this, then I have nothing to do with you. And that shouldn't be the case, because all doctors swear to doing no harm. There are well-meaning doctors out there who want to help you, but just don't know better. And it's up to you to educate yourself so you can educate them. Yes, just because they have a white coat doesn't mean that you can't educate them because they also went through a system that gives blanket approaches to everything, that gives standard protocols to everything. And that's how they're trained. And that's fine. That's just how they're trained. But it's up to you to go into those offices and say, I know that this causes this, this, and this. And is there another option for me? Or how can I take this more safely without affecting my health in the long term? On the same point, we cannot ignore that. Your health is in your hands. If you take control of your health and if you educate yourself about your health and if you are disciplined, then most of these conditions can be handled naturally. When it comes to these medications, especially like the birth control pill, it's going to take the whole medical system, the pharmaceuticals, the legislators to say, look, we got it wrong, let's start over. I believe that the whole chapter on women's health just needs to be rewritten. It's very broad and is highly outdated. And it starts again with you. It starts with you making the conscious decision to look after yourself, to stand up for yourself and to educate yourself about your own health so that nobody can mislead you or nobody can misguide you when it comes to the medications that you are prescribed this is how we can get attention of the doctors this is how we can get attention of lawmakers and the policy cha- the policy changes these are the people that we need to impact this is how we get the attention of the pharmaceutical companies and once we start to take a stand then they go back to the drawing board and say let's make something better and that's how we can revolutionize women's health so again i'm going to put a disclaimer here if you're On any of these medications that I've talked about, or any medication in general, please talk to your health practitioner before you decide to come off anything or before you decide to start anything. If you want to go the natural route of things, see a homeopath, see a naturopath, or see a doctor who specializes in integrative medicine. They'll help you understand both sides of things, the natural and the medical side of things, and and help you with more natural methods or more natural remedies that you can use To manage your health that being said next week we'll start on the natural health approach we'll talk about the herbal remedies we'll talk about detoxification we'll talk about diet and lifestyle we'll talk about it all and how you can start to take control of your life naturally i'll see you next week thanks for tuning in for today's episode if you'd like to find out more about woman wellness and how you can start to heal yourself by making informed and empowered health decisions then go ahead and book a consultation on the website. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share this episode with another wise woman like yourself. Let's build this sisterhood. I'm your host Wanga Hanyani and I'll be back next Wednesday. Be well.